It's time for another exciting episode of Ask Us Anything on the Goggler Podcast, our weekly segment in which we answer or attempt to answer all of your pressing questions. We got a whole bunch of great questions this week as well, but we're going to lead with the obvious one. At Brandon Horshingvern asks, between Morbius and Madam Webb, which film do you consider to be laughably bad? Morbius. Really? So for me, it's this. As I've said in our review, I've got a thing against Jared Leto only in that he's drank his own Kool-Aid. He believes his own hype. That makes him a considerably funnier watch than Dakota Johnson. Interesting. Yeah. I'm going with the definition laughably bad here. But you are going with the laughable bit as opposed to the bad bit. I think they're both terrible films. However, Morbius left me annoyed slash angry and just laughing at the hilarity of how bad it is. Whereas Madam Web left me with a lot of pity for all the people involved. I think Madam Web is a worse film than Morbius. And so I found it funnier because of that. As I was watching, I was throwing my hands up in the air and laughing a lot more than I did with Morbius. That said, as we responded to one of the comments on our Instagram feed, that's like asking me which I would rather eat, dog shit or cat shit. Yeah. Same, same lah. I would rather starve, probably. But yes, to answer your question, Brandon Horshengburn, they're both pretty bad, but Bahe found Morbius a lot more laughable. I found Madam Web a lot more laughable. And so there you have it. If you do see the movie, I'm not sure if you have, but if you do see the movie, let us know your thoughts on it because we're trying to find out if there is anyone out there who goes, you know what, guys, you're wrong. This was a lot of fun. I give it a 10 out of 10. So I saw that a friend of ours had shared a sort of Instagram reel about someone giving it a six and a half out of ten. Six and a half? I'm like, that guy was fucking delusional. That is, wow. That's wild. That's some wild shit. I can't even do the movie math in my head to get to six and a half. Everything was in focus. We have a follow-up to... The Madam Web question. It isn't specifically about Madam Web, but it actually applies to Madam Web. At Ibu Jenny says, when two characters are talking to each other and the camera is behind the speaker, is the speaker really physically saying what's on audio or are they just taking whatever shot that has the best reaction from the listener? Because I feel the side cheek movements never match the audio and that's always bugged me. End quote. Great question, Ibu Jenny. Fantastic question. Thank you for that. Well, <laughs> shall, I, shall, I, shall I do a quick one on editing? Please. So generally what they would do is that it's called the reaction shot, what you're talking about, Ibu Jenny. And basically it's to show the person who is listening to the speaker react to something. That's traditionally how it is used. That's academically how it should be used. But people have also used it as a way to cut around things, right? It can be a take from a different part of the conversation, etc. However, with regards to Madam Webb, it really feels like, and I think your instinct is correct, 
in that they used those reaction shots as a way to cover up the fact that they've probably rewritten it and gotten the main speaker to do ADR, audio dialogue replacement, to just sort of fix what they felt was wrong. Not all ADR is bad. In fact, I would probably safely estimate that about 85% eighty-five to 90% of all Hollywood films are ADR'd and that's because you don't want to stick a mic on someone, there's cables, maybe you heard the cameraman moving, somebody tripped on something. So the ADR part is not the problem. It's how Madam Web specifically was using that ADR. A lot of film and television don't just use ADR to replace bad audio. They do use it to actually fill in the blanks when maybe they don't have enough footage or they're trying to add some exposition that was absolutely necessary. And we've seen it happen quite a bit. And a lot of the time you don't notice when it's done well. In the case of something like Madam Web, or if you look at a whole bunch of bad movies, for example, the studio may have a different idea of what they want the movie to be. And so ADR and some slick editing is used in an attempt to tell a different story based on the footage they might have. And that's when things go to shit. Yeah. That said, in Malaysia and in Malaysian movies and productions, almost 80 to 90% of audio is ADR. It is so rare that Malaysian filmmakers capture live audio. I don't know if that's changed, but at least right up to maybe four or five years ago, like I've sat in on an ADR session and I have to say some Malaysian actors and nearly all Indonesian actors are phenomenal at doing ADR. The way they can mimic exactly what they did on that take and you see it on screen, oh, that is an art in itself. So like, Good ADR is a real skill, and if it's done well, you won't even notice. But you're right, once you know it's there, you can't help but look at the jaw movements from the side of someone's face. Yeah. We had a follow-up question from Ibu Jenny, which was, have you ever been told by an actor's PR team not to publicly acknowledge what assholes they are? I'm going to leave this one to you. So, more often than not, the people we speak to at these interviews are incredibly professional and very, very nice because they know that they have a job to do. Their job is to promote their movie. And that involves speaking to maybe 50 journalists in the period of eight hours, back to back to back to back, where admittedly, all of us aren't particularly creative and asking the same questions, right? Because you've seen the film and there are only so many questions you can ask. And more often than not, the PR people are like, please only ask questions about the movie. And so, yes, it's a tedious job. It's a boring job, but it's your one job because you are there to promote a movie. And most people are absolutely professional. And so it's very rare that we've had issues with celebrities, especially Hollywood people, where they're being particularly mean or unwarranted assholes. I have been in interviews where the talent has gotten angry. And admittedly, it was warranted because some of the questions are incredibly stupid. And so I can understand their frustration. But for the most part, that hardly ever happens. That said, on a couple of occasions, we have had PR teams and agents and people 
apologize for the behavior of the talent, whether they were rude or incredibly late or even canceled on an interview. Interestingly enough, we find that happens a lot more with local Malaysian talent, where you're at a press junket and it just gets canceled at the last minute. Nobody shows up. The actor has decided, you know what, I'm going to take an extra long lunch. So everyone starts two hours late. That kind of unprofessional behavior I found happens a lot more during local press junkets. I'm assuming that's not particularly surprising. <laughs> Next question. At Eri Awesomes asks, what is your most nostalgic childhood movie? Yeah, I was thinking about this. I was thinking about this a lot. I don't know what yours is. Okay, so for me, it's hard on because like, I don't know if I have a most nostalgic childhood movie. So here's the thing. I grew up in the mid to late 80s. A lot of it was VHS stuff. I remember the VHSs that we used to watch a lot of would be something like uh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Ooh. which is a which is a firm favorite of mine. Watched a lot of Sound of Music, which kind of probably explains my my leanings towards musicals. But yeah, it'll probably be one of those or a Disney classic film, right? Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Love Cinderella. I love Robin Hood. Recently watched that again. I loved Sword in the Stone. What I was going to answer with this question was, I was going to say the first movie that made me really fall in love with watching movies in the cinema was actually Jurassic Park. I remember which cinema I went to to go watch that. Rex KL? Ruby. Oh, you went to Ruby. I was a PJ kid at the time. Oh, okay. I watched Jurassic Park at Rex KL because I believe Rex KL was the first to have some kind of THX or Dolby sound Ooh. at the time or something crazy. I was not educated enough to know these things. And I share your sentiment because that blew my mind. That was the first time I experienced something like that in the cinema. And it was amazing. However... My childhood nostalgia movies, I remember Black to the Future blowing me away because that was the first time a movie ended and it's said to be continued on the VHS. Mm. And of course, at the time I was watching it, it's not like we had internet or any idea that Robert Zemeckis was making part two and three. And also, I don't even think part two and three was announced at the time. And so I was just like bugging my sister and mom, like, wait, what do you mean to be continued? What is this part two? When is it coming out? What is happening? Where did they go? Are they in the future? Like, I had so many questions. It was that weird period in human civilization where nobody can answer that question. Like, the grown-ups didn't have an answer for me. Yeah. But my childhood nostalgia movies were actually really weird action films because my granddad used to love, like, bad action movies and he right. always used to take us to the cinema when we had like a day with him it would always be in the cinema and we'd always be watching a Stallone a Dolph right. Lundgren a Steven Seagal a Van Damme movie and yeah. so I grew up watching a lot of those movies right right those right. 1980s 1990s just hardcore Hollywood action films I never watched those until much later right my dad hated those movies and he still mostly hates them. So I never got that into my steady diet until I started hanging out with like my cousins and stuff. Huh. Yeah. But there used to be a shop down my street called Kiddie Store and they used to have 
in a back room, a VHS rental place. And so a lot of my childhood was about the movies they had that were available. Can I just sort of quickly add context? For people who are younger than 35, probably, these back rooms were probably actual back rooms. And the reason they were back rooms was because it was mostly illegal. Of course, all of those VHSs were pirated, 100%. They came in these cardboard boxes and the poster of the film on the front of the box was usually a three-hour photo of the poster of the film that someone had stuck on the front of the box. Just just for anybody who's younger than 35, just a context here. At Ari Awesome, comment and let us know what your favorite nostalgic childhood movies were. Our next question is from Magat Ayman 1. Do cinemas play the digital versions of a movie when they do reruns? Hook up Netflix to their projectors, for example? Not quite. They're quite strict with cinemas, right? So for the most part, if you are going to do a rerun of some sort, you're still going through the distributors. And when I say distributors, I mean Warner and Sony and Disney and Universal. But you're getting an official version. So, for example, recently for WB100, they did reruns of the Christopher Nolan movies and the first Conjuring movie. Right now, they're doing a rerun of the first Dune movie. And essentially what you get is what's called the DCP, which is a hard drive. It's not even a hard drive. It used to be a hard drive. Now they email a link with the digital version of the file. But of course, that file has been vetted through our Lombardo Panapisan film. And it's been cut appropriately and given a rating. And so there are a whole load of things that need to happen before something gets on cinema screens. Even if it's a rerun, it is still treated like a feature film for public consumption. LPF needs to get involved. It's official licensing. Also, there are no more Malaysian cinemas with a 35mm projector anymore, so they're always all digital versions. It's still digital. It's not played off a streaming service. Although if you rent out a cinema hall to have a birthday party, then you can, as a private function, play whatever you want. As long as you're not selling tickets. As long as you're not selling tickets. Fanatic 91 asks, a letterbox question. Top five favorite movies. I can't do this one. I really can't. I always entertain these questions because I think they're important to getting to know the other person. However, I always caveat it with my list will change whenever you ask me. If you ask me today, I'll give you five. Three weeks from now, you ask me again, I might give you a different five. Not saying that the first five is inaccurate. It's a really a mood thing. And I'm not saying this as a gloaty thing, but especially when you've seen as many films as we have and constantly continue to watch as many films as we do. Because I think what ends up happening is that we tend to categorize films differently. So I actually have running lists of things I love from different genres. And I think coming up with the top five of all time is quite difficult. I have five, say, movies or 10 movies that I keep going back to, that I keep rewatching over and over again, that maybe had a significant impact on my childhood growing up. But that top five changes almost on a week-to-week basis. But Joker Fanatic 91, I will give you an answer to your question. This list is, again, caveated by the fact that this is what my list is today. 
essentially, whenever I'm coming up with a list, I always ask myself, if I was flipping through a hotel TV channel and I see a movie show up, what movie would I sit down and watch? So my five, Casablanca, Wizard of Oz, The Lord of the Rings trilogy. I'm cheating and saying the trilogy and not just picking one. The first Ocean's Eleven, not the original Frank Sinatra one, but the Brad Pitt, George Clooney one, and the original West Side Story. I like all of those choices. If you put a gun to my head right now, the movies that would pop into my brain, Ghostbusters, Back to the Future, In the Mood for Love, Empire Strikes Back, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Can I just say, I don't think either of our lists are that surprising to people who know us. <laughs> no, I don't think they are. And I think they would also be interchangeable between us at any given time. Yeah, like I would sit down and watch your five and I think you would sit down and watch any of my five. Yeah, anytime, anytime. Easy, yeah. The next question is a little harder though. Interestingly enough, the next question I found a lot easier. So, oh. so at Daman Kadri asks, what are Uma and Bahe's five favorite local movies? Much easier. You know why? Because there aren't that many. <laughs> there are very few great local movies to pick from. And and I have to say, with these local movies, I am excluding the P. Ramlee stuff because I think I cannot limit that to five. There are a lot of his works that I absolutely love. And I yep. think he was a genius. And I think if you watch them now, they are truly fucking timeless. Yes. So, excluding P. Ramlee's works, my five... Uh, Lelaki Harapandunya, La Luna, we're going old school with XX Ray, also because it was like the first Malay science fiction movie I ever saw as a kid and it blew me away. Sure. Jagat and Perempuan Istri Dan dot dot dot. Those are my five. There are a couple more, especially from the 90s and 80s that I do enjoy, but I think five favorite local movies would be those. Again, not particularly surprising. I mean, for me, I would also pick Lelaki Harapan Dunia. I really liked Kala Malam Bulan Mengambang. It's a great film. Great film. La Luna. I'd also go Tiga Janda. There was one movie that came out in 2019. It's called Once Upon a Time. Football movie set in like pre-independence Malaya. It's currently on Netflix. I really liked it because... Unlike a lot of Malaysian sports films with the whole ragtag team thing, this one doesn't stumble into cheesiness. It doesn't stumble into stupidity the way something like, oof, I don't know, Kamanche Boys did. I don't know if it's a local favorite, but it is definitely one that when I saw, I was very, very happy with. My controversial take on all of this is that none of Yasmin's movies are on my list. Same. And it's not that I don't like them. I think they're fine movies. I just don't react emotionally the same way other people do. I truly appreciate her work, but I think for me, a lot of it felt too saccharine and too rah-rah Malaysiana for my taste, because it felt a little forced. This is in hindsight many years later. And again, caveat it all you want with not a knock against the late Yasmin Ahmad. 
I loved her as a person. She was a she was a dear friend of mine, dear mentor. But other than Sepit, my biggest issue was the fact that all her subsequent films felt the same. They were not the same story, but they felt the same. The tone and the themes were similar. Sepit was great for the time, but would it be on my local favorite list? Probably not. Oral B80 asks, when will Hungry Ghost Diner 2 come out? Well, we reached out to the filmmakers of Hungry Ghost Diner and um, Uma, what did director John Cho have to say? First of all, we acknowledge what you're trying to say. Yes, at Oral B80, it was a pretty great Malaysian movie. We loved it too. But director John Cho told us that when they were in Holland touring the movie, he said, like I told an audience member in Holland, any possibility of a sequel was extinguished with the unexpected demise of Sam Chong. Sam Chong played the uncle mm-hmm. in Hungry Ghost Diner. He passed away very recently, just after the release of the movie. So I guess that's the unfortunate, not so funny fun answer to that question. But I will say, I will say, I will say, please get your friends to watch Hungry Ghost Diner. It's on Netflix right now. I mean, I'd have said this, I think I tried to say it when it was in cinemas, but if enough people watch it, then maybe the filmmakers will have the opportunity to maybe not make Hungry Ghost Diner 2, but make further films because they are really fantastic filmmakers. Here's one by at Gamma Ray 07. What's another good show like the IT crowd? If you like British sitcoms, yes, it is a very specific taste. I think shows like the IT crowd, follow a very English tone. And so there are a whole bunch of British comedies out there that kind of fit and match that tone. And so there's a lot, friend. Like you can start from Red Dwarf and Blackadder if Mm. you want something more classic. But if you want something more contemporary, then there's Peep Show and Black Books. Space, the in-betweeners. You and I both love Dairy Girls. Such a great show. But, 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 there's a show coming out on Apple TV Plus in a couple of weeks. I think it's 1st of March or something like that. I can't remember the date right now, but it's called The Completely Made-Up Adventures of Dick Turpin. And it stars Noel Fielding, who is one of the co-hosts of Bake Off. He was responsible for a great show. Yet again, another surreal show called The Mighty Boosh. He was also in The IT Crowd. Mm -hmm. And this one is like peak random British humor. (laughs) So if you like that sort of thing, this goes all out. And I had a blast watching this. So Dick Turpin was a real person. I, I, I say that with some apprehension because all of the stories about Dick Turpin seem to be exaggerated and made up. He was a highwayman. Uh, he was a robber. And everything you find about him on the internet and the books that have been written about him seem incredibly exaggerated. And thus this TV series, The Completely Made Up Adventures of Dick Turpin, which kind of takes it to the illogical extreme. And it's very, very funny. All right, our final question is something that we have been asked many times, but this time in particular by at jjrel.gan and at Ken Yang Wong, who essentially go, how do I join the Goggler team? How do I get involved in work like you guys? You answer the first one, I'll answer the second one. We're not hiring anyone full-time is the short answer, but we're always looking for good contributors. We have 
a bunch of contributors at the moment and you can see their work on our site goggler.my and we're always looking for good writers, people who love film and have the ability to express themselves and have a worldview and can make a good argument about why they like something or dislike something. That is always what we're looking for because that's the kind of conversations we love to have and we have among ourselves on a daily basis even when we're not on this podcast. I think Bahe, myself, our wives were constantly talking about this. It's very boring and it gets old sometimes, but it's always on our mind, right? And so we like mixing with those kind of people and we like having them as our friends. And so those are the kind of people we like writing and working for us too. I will say the only advice I will have is to do it consistently. Do it on your own Instagram page, set up a separate Instagram page if you like, but you have to do it consistently. I think that's the one thing that we have found that actually in a lot of ways separates us from a lot of other people in that we will do it constantly. When we started Goggle I the timing was that I just happened to go on a holiday away with my family and on the plane I was watching movies I hadn't seen to then arrive at my destination and write reviews. Essentially the idea is that you have to do it consistently. I've seen people set up Instagram pages to do a movie review thing and then stop after 6 weeks, stop after 6 months. You can't. You have to just keep going. And I think if you are not doing it full time, and I will say don't do it full time at first. Don't quit your day job to do this thinking you'll make money and get access, but if you do it in your free time, you do it consistently, I will tell you the distributors and the streamers will find it and then they will get in touch. To be honest, that's what we did, right? Between us we've been doing this for over 25 years maybe collectively and it was not just consistent but we were also continuously honing our craft. And what I mean by that is we were always writing and even if we never publish it, we were constantly writing even if we share it with one another. It was something that practice really helps. Mm. And so it was something we kept doing. We were always reading other people's reviews, we were constantly watching things, we were buying books and learning about the industry and the craft of filmmaking and all of that builds the knowledge base. It fills up your tank. And only when that tank is full do you have enough information to then dissect a film or a TV show and write about it and make an interesting point and have a world view because that's how you justify why you like or dislike something so practice hone your craft build up that knowledge base that's how you get involved in this sort of work mm -hmm. which brings us to the end of this episode of ask us anything keep those questions coming in you know how to reach out at GogglerMY are all of our social media feeds. You can also email us at podcast at goggler.my or send us a WhatsApp on the Goggler hotline, 012-524-5208. Thank you so much for listening. This is the Goggler Podcast.